Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all the riches you have poured out upon us in our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that our life is hidden with him in God, and when he appears, we shall appear with him in glory according to your promised word. We thank you for seasons when we are conscious that our Lord Jesus has drawn near to us, fills our lives with a sense of his presence. We marvel at the ways in which in his sovereignty he withdraws that sense of his presence from us and teaches us that the children who walk in darkness and have no light may yet trust in the name of the Lord and for his perfect weaving of his own gracious purposes into our lives. We give you thanks and praise. We pray, our Father, as we turn to your word, that we may find afresh in Jesus Christ and in his presence all that we shall ever need. And as we come with such a multitude of burdens and cares and joys and pleasures and pasts and presents and futures, we cry to you that in the ministry of your word, our Lord Jesus Christ will make himself known to us in all his sufficiency and grace, that by whatever word we are turned to him and pointed to his marvelous sufficiency, we may know that Jesus has drawn near by his Spirit, that Jesus is calling us, and that in the power of his Spirit we pray that we may come afresh to him tonight through his Word and find that Jesus Christ does all things well. And this we pray together for his great name's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we turn again this evening to the eighth chapter of Romans, where we have been studying for a number of weeks, and this evening we come to great words at the end of the third major paragraphing in Romans chapter 8, according to the chapter division in our Pew Bible. And we're reading Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through verse 30. Romans 8, 28 through verse 30. And the passage is in the Pew Bible, if you're using it, on page 944. 944. Let us hear God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I suppose over the course of my own Christian life, I've met more people 
who have told me that Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is their favorite text in all the Bible. More people have told me that than any other verse in the Bible. Indeed, it's just possible that more people have told me that than have told me all the other verses in the Bible are their favorite verses. And it's not surprising to put it at its most superficial. Romans 8 verse 28 has rescued many a Christian believer from many a difficult fix. And many Christian believers have found in these words a great anchor for their soul. But if this as it may be, is your first evening with us for a long time, or perhaps your first evening with us ever, I think it's important for you as well as for all of us to understand that Romans chapter 8 verse 28 did not fall down from heaven on a small piece of paper. Romans chapter 8 is the great, wonderful section of Romans in which Paul is beginning to enlarge upon the assurance that Christian believers enjoy. He has actually hinted at that several times earlier on in Romans, but it becomes marvelously clear here, as we've noted on a number of occasions, when he moves from the ringing confidence that for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no possibility of condemnation. And therefore, to the end in verse 39, that for those who are thus in Jesus Christ, there can be no possibility of separation. And yet, in the course of this chapter, in between these two great bookends, it's obvious that Paul is not saying this as somebody who avoids reality. He is not one of those hopeless optimistics who, whatever disaster happens, keeps a toothpaste smile on his face and says, everything will be all right in the end. Because as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul very clearly believes that everything will not be all right in the end for many people. And he underlines that, actually, in these great words. So, he has been building up an argument. One of the reasons I've sometimes gently, at least I've meant it to be gentle, gently hinted that the New International Version of the Bible fails us here is because it misses out so many of the little connective words that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. In fact, the English Standard Version doesn't include them all either. I suppose the translators thought it might be a little tedious to keep putting in those little connectives, sometimes almost just noises little words, but and 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 therefore, that the Apostle Paul fills this chapter with as he weaves, as Duff James so rightly was teaching the children, as he weaves this amazing logical design of the Heavenly Father as he gives a glorious assurance to his children. In a sense, although some of us probably know Romans 8 
verses 1 through 39, off by heart. It would be a monumental mind that was able to contain all the subtleties of Paul's argument as he builds it up and builds it up and builds it up and builds it up. But essentially, we've seen he's really saying two things. First of all, the Christian may have great assurance of his or her salvation because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Our sin was condemned in Jesus Christ, and therefore payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. No double jeopardy means that since Christ has borne my condemnation, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. But there is a second great reason that the Christian enjoys assurance of salvation, and it is because the Father who has done something for us in Jesus Christ now sends His Spirit to do something in us, to secure us against the influences of sin, to give us a a sense that we are no longer living in the kingdom of the flesh, but in the kingdom of the Spirit. That sweet assurance, sweetest of all assurances, as the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we really are the children of God. And if we are the children of God, the sons of God, then we are heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, provided we suffer with Him. And then, oh yes, in the face of suffering, the Apostle Paul has reassured us that the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness, takes the heavy end of our burdens, and enables us to live on this sometimes overwhelmingly difficult pilgrimage, so that many of us look back and we say with thankfulness to God, God, I'm not sure I could go through all that again. I only came through that because the Spirit helped me in my weakness, even to the extent that when I am so weakened, I don't know how to pray or what to pray for. The Spirit makes intercession for the saints in the midst of confusion, difficulty, tragedy, suffering. The Spirit makes intercession for the saints, and that intercession for us and within us is in perfect conformity to the will of the heavenly Father. Now, he's rising to the summit, and in addition, he says, and in addition, we know that for those who love God… But here there is just a little bit of a problem. We know that for those who love God, well, what exactly do we know? In a sense, 
how different translators, and if you're using one or other of the translations, or if you, like me, you've gone from your early Christian life using the King James Version. Of course, I used to call that the authorized version, and gone right through to the New International Version and the English Standard Version. This verse will be known to you in different forms. We know that God is working everything together for good for those who love Him, or we know that all things are working together for good for those who love God. Actually, it's just possible, and it's a very attractive way to look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that the subject of the verb works here is the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul has used several verbs that speak about the Holy Spirit working certain things, accompanying our lives in certain ways. And certainly the previous passage has been about the Holy Spirit, and so some very significant Christian scholars believe Paul is still speaking here about the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit as the executive of the divine trinity in the world, just as we were reading in the psalm this evening, who works everything together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. But however our translators translate the nuances of what Paul is saying, in a sense, it amounts to one and the same thing. Everything works together for the good of those who love God, because God works everything together for the good of those who love God, because God does that in the power of His Holy Spirit. And so the Christian believer enjoys, first of all, this great assurance of God's sovereign activity. He works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Now, you notice that this statement about God's providence, this is what it's speaking about, God's providence in your life, that this statement about the extent of God's providence has no limitation whatsoever. Is He simply speaking about these hard and difficult things that He's described in the previous verses, when we don't know how to pray as we ought, when we face suffering and struggle and grief and pain before the future glory? Well, if it's true of those things, it must by necessity be true of everything. And so, let us take this to heart right at the very beginning. God's providential, sovereign superintendence of our lives involves absolutely everything. There is nothing that takes our God by surprise. There is nothing that takes place outside of His sovereign superintendence and watch care, and there is nothing that can ever happen that can distort or destroy God's eternal purposes for His people. Nothing whatsoever. As the apostle says in Ephesians chapter 1, 
This God is a God who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Now, the test case of that, of course, is the worst possible things that happen. And the proof for Paul that God works everything together for the good of those who love Him is found supremely where the proof of everything ultimately is found for the Apostle Paul in the test case of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings everything back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was his companion, Luke, you remember, his traveling companion and personal physician who had written in the Acts of the Apostles about the great sermon of Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost. I mean, of all the apostles to say this on the day of Pentecost, a matter of weeks after the Lord Jesus had been crucified, Simon Peter was the most unlikely because Simon Peter was the apostle who had most opposed Jesus going to the cross. And therefore, it is a wonder of God's gracious working in his life that he stands up on the day of Pentecost and stares down those who had crucified the Lord Jesus and says he was crucified by the hands of wicked and cruel men according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And you see what this means. If the worst thing, the most evil thing that has ever happened in this world, for these early Christians who surrounded Jesus, the greatest tragedy of all was still under the sovereign superintendence of God, a hundred percent the action of wicked men, and yet no less one hundred percent the divine strategy coming to pass, even amazingly, through the activities of wicked men working together for the saving good of those who come to love God in Jesus Christ. Actually, one of the reasons that's a great security is this, because no matter who does what to you, you can smile in the furnace, because you know the worst you can do to me, whoever you are, just makes you an instrument in the hands of my heavenly Father to do me good. You know, if somebody in your office or somebody in college or somebody in your high school is after you because you're a Christian and seeking to demean you and to despise you, you can quietly say to the Lord, Lord, let them, because you mean to do me good. So, this is a universal statement. There are, there are no limitations to this. And the outcome is so marvelous, isn't it? It's, it's, as folks at home in Scotland would say, it's nay natural what God does. It's not natural. You see, we follow the, the, the dark threads in our lives, and we cannot see how they will do us good. 
You know, in the good old days when we uh, had watches, if there was anything wrong with them, we had the opportunity to see what was inside them. Now you get these watches, and when something goes wrong, you never see inside it. You have no idea what goes on in there. Some of you understand what goes on in there, but the rest of us, we have no idea, nor do we care what goes on in there. Do you remember those of you who are of a slightly older generation opening up the back of your watch and seeing all these wheels? Did you ever look at those little wheels and think to yourself, why is that wheel going in the wrong direction? Why is it that the hands on the watch are going the right way around when some of those wheels seem to be going the wrong way around? And how can it be that wheels going the right way around and wheels going the wrong way around can give me the right time? Absolutely amazing. At least it was amazing to me in my little Timex watch, which I still have. Got it when I was 14, and it's still going. Now, my dear friends, if the watchmaker can do that, don't you think the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord of whom we were reading about in this psalm tonight, is able to take the wheels of life that go in such opposite directions and seem to create such friction and do His perfect will and listen to this, so that on His watch everything takes place in your life at just the right time. He's working everything together for good, but that's not where the sentence finishes, is it? There is a qualification. There is no limitation to God's power to work everything together for good for those who love Him. Paul is not saying everything will work out in the end. Paul is not saying everything turns out for the best, because it doesn't in this life, nor, alas, in the life to come. Not everything turned out for the best for Judas Iscariot. Our Lord Jesus Himself makes that clear, doesn't He? So, everything is worked together for the good of those who love God. Because that is the sign, you see, the evidence that they have been, now notice Paul's language, called according to His purpose. So, you see, Paul is not saying everything works for the good, and uh, make up your own good. My dear friends, we cannot be trusted with knowing what is best for us. Remember your mother or father saying that to you? But I really want this. It will be good for me. You have no idea what's good for you. No idea whatsoever. My mother used to say to me, it made me almost tear my hair out she would say, Sinclair, there is no substitute for experience. And at seven years old, that could be mighty irritating when you had only six and a half years of experience of which you had any consciousness. And you see the oldest of us in this room. Is there somebody here who's verging on 80 or even beyond 80? You have just 80 years of experience. That's all. 
And the thing is, you've only 80 years of experience of your own life. You've never experienced anybody else's life except your own. Isn't that a mystery? You might think you have, but you haven't. You might think you really know other people. We hardly know other people at all. We scarcely know ourselves. Our experience is so limited. The idea that I could know what is best for me and say to the Heavenly Father, I know best. No, no. Father knows best. Isn't that a movie title? It's a movie title. I don't know what's in the movie, but the movie title's great theology, isn't it? And so the real question is, as we rest in the assurance of God's sovereign activity, and Paul goes on to this, you'll notice, in the next verse, what has he got to say then about the believer's final destiny. If God works everything together at the right time, in the right place, in the right life, for good, what is that good that is the believer's final destiny? And you notice he explains it amazingly in verse 29. He says, it all works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, and his purpose is that those whom he foreknew, this is why it all works together for good, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, this is the Father creating a family and he's creating that family around the elder brother, Jesus Christ. And his great purpose is to conform us to the likeness, to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he's, he's already woven into his, his tapestry here, hasn't he? That notion that ran through the central section that he's called us to be sons that He's called us into His family, that we have this family instinct to call God Father, that we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And now He's saying as clearly as He can, do you see where all this is leading? It's leading to this great destiny that ultimately you will bear the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ and it will be clear in your life that He is your elder brother. And of course, running underneath this is all the darkness and, and struggle and sorrow and grief and persecution and misunderstanding that the Lord Jesus Himself went through. In His own human experience, He learned obedience to the things He suffered as he grew physically, he also grew to a, a glorious maturity. He was made mature through the things he suffered. As he responded in the knowledge that he was being superintended by his heavenly Father's will before the very eyes of his, of his foster parents, as it were, his mother Mary and his stepfather, as it were, Joseph, and then the brothers, and then those around him. 
And Paul is saying, do you see this is the essence of it all? This, my dear friends, at the end of the day is the only thing that will last forever in your life. What is like the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, woven into your particular person, your particular experience, your particular character, but that family likeness. Lovely to stand at the church door here on a Sunday morning and, and sometimes see families with visitors from out of town. You can tell immediately they're family. You see it in the eyes, in the structure of the face, sometimes in the nose or the shape of the ears or the way they hold themselves, or how they react to situations, how they smile. Have you ever noticed that families tend to have similar smiles? All kinds of things, gesticulations, because you become like the people whose genes you share and with whom you live. And since we have been born again into the family of God and live in the company of Jesus Christ, the heavenly Father, as it were, squeezes us into the mold of all kinds of experiences so that at the last He may be pleased to look upon us and see the likeness of His own dear Son in us. And Paul says, do you notice, that it is for this that we have been foreknown now, notice, when Paul uses this language of foreknowledge, he's not talking about what God will see us do in the future. It's not the foreknowledge of our actions he's speaking about. It's the foreknowledge of our persons. And the language surely conveys as the language of knowledge often does in the Scriptures, a sense of entering into a, a loving, intimate relationship with seeing, as it were, loving, setting your heart upon. Those He has foreknown, those He has loved from all eternity, says the Apostle Paul, He also you see, He loves from eternity, and then He destines us towards eternity. He has predestined us that we should be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. That's a thought that really gripped Paul. Remember, as he looks forward to the Lord coming again in glory, he says, the Lord will come from heaven, and He will transform even these bodies of lowliness and humiliation to be like to His glorious body. That's why creation, Paul has said, is groaning. Remember back there in verse 19, the whole creation, as Phillips translates it as we saw, the whole creation is standing on tiptoe, uh, stretching out its neck, looking over, as it were, the horizon of history. You can hear the creaks in creation's ancient bones, because creation is also sick and unwell. And as creation strains forward in Paul's picture to look over the horizon, 
What is creation longing to see? It's longing to see marching over the horizon the children of God enjoying the liberty of the glory of being finally transformed into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing is, he's not waiting for that day before he begins. He's working everything together for the good of those who love him to conform them to the likeness of his Son. I know absolutely nothing about this that I'm about to mention by way of personal experience, but I've read it in a number of places. I don't believe everything I read, but I can imagine this is true, that the difference between me when I see a great block of stone and a great sculptor when he or she sees a great block of stone is what I see is a great block of stone. What the sculptor sees is what's inside that stone once he or she has carved and chipped away everything that is not in their vision of what that stone will be. Now, that's what God is doing. If stones could speak, I mean, imagine I have a, I have a molding of that great Rodin sculptor, the thinker, you know, I guess it's, uh, somebody gave it to me, but I guess it's kind of aspirations of, uh, that I might be able to think one day, you know, the thinker's wonderful sculptor. Now you see, imagine Rodin coming to that block, and that block was alive. You know, it'd be comfortable to be made into that glorious sculptor as he chipped away, banged away with his hammer? My dear friends, most of us, when we get a hip replacement, are sure glad of the anesthetic. But God doesn't use the anesthetic. God chips away, and he chips away. And the thing is, what God sees is not just isolated individuals. That would be so much easier. But what God sees is a, is a whole family of younger brothers and sisters for the elder brother, Jesus Christ. And so sometimes when he's chiseling into one of the other brothers and sisters, his chisel by necessity also has to go into you because he's molding us and shaping us and conforming us to the likeness of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus. So we have a great assurance of God's sovereign activity. We have this marvelous description of the believer's final destiny. And then he has an explanation of God's present activity. If I can put it this way, how does he get us from here to there? And you remember how he puts it. He says there is a there is a four-dimensional work of God takes place in our lives. There is a dimension that is rooted in eternity. Those whom He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Now, we'll come to predestination, surely, when we get into chapter 9. Let me just say this in passing. I mean, some people say to you, you believe in predestination? 
Hey, if you don't believe in predestination, you're as well to throw your Bible in the trash can. It's full of predestination. Absolutely. You need to rip Romans out of your Bible. I think, actually, Paul dares to mention predestination here. Why? Because he's talking about God, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he understands this very simple principle, that were it not for God's sovereign movement towards me, there is no possibility that I would have made a personal movement towards Him. Is there? Tis not that I did choose Thee, Lord, for that could not be, says Josiah Condor. Every, every person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, when they are thinking clearly, or at least praying clearly, understands that. Have you ever heard somebody pray, Lord, just leave them to themselves? Nobody prays that way. Everybody prays, Lord, bend eternity to break into their lives. Rescue them. So, when Paul speaks about predestination. He's speaking about what really is the the logical implication of our own sinfulness. God in eternity had to set His heart upon us, and God in eternity had to destine us for future glory, or we would never have got there. Ah, but you see, says Paul, what begins in eternity then begins to take place in our hearts, whom He predestined, them He also called them he also called. What does that mean? Remember when you were young, your father or your mother calling, it's time to get up. And at first you thought it was part of the dream. And then you realized it uh, wasn't a dream, it was a new day. That's what happens. Like Samuel called, not knowing, where's that coming from? Many of us, that's exactly our experience. As though there, there, began to, there began to be tugs on our hearts and consciences, and we, we said, what, what's happening to me? Some of us would become quite disturbed. And then it became clearer as we were raised from our spiritual death and slumber into spiritual life. Oh, it's you, Lord. You're calling me. Oh, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. So, those He predestined, He calls, and those He calls, He justifies. His predestination in eternity, His calling right into my mind and heart, and my justification before the throne of God, so that as I often love to say, I can stand before that throne knowing that there is no condemnation for me in Jesus Christ, no possibility of condemnation. I can say to my conscience, conscience, be silenced by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. I can say to Satan when he accuses me, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him Christ has died. And then final glorification, 
And if you've been with us this this whole season in Romans, it's wonderful to think, Paul, at last you've got back to this. He had spoken about the disaster of the fall and how we've exchanged the glory of God for lies about God and how we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, chapter 3, verse 23, and then in Christ, that now being justified, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And now he's saying that the glory of God will so shine upon us and transform us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus that we will enjoy what he's called the glorious liberty or the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So there is ruin and there is present restoration and there is final con summation. So, this is the bedrock of grace. Even before I was born, He had set His love upon me. I am fascinated. Some of you probably could guess this. I'm absolutely fascinated and have been since I was a teenager by Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, and especially the way He describes His disciples, those whom you gave me before the foundation of the world. That's his pet name for Christian believers. Do we have pet names in Columbia, South Carolina, nicknames, names we call one another? Nobody outside the family knows what it is. His pet name for Christians is those you gave me before the foundation of the world. And isn't it interesting? Yards have been written on this. Those He predestined in the past, them He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glory it is as sure as though it had already happened. And this is the bedrock of our assurance. As John Campbell Sharp puts it in his hymn, twixt gleams of joy and clouds of doubt, our feelings come and go. Our best estate is tossed about in ceaseless ebb and flow. No mood of feeling, form of thought is constant for a day. But Thou, O Lord, Thou changest not, the same Thou art alway. Thy purpose of eternal good, let me but surely know, on this I'll lean. Let changing mood and feeling come and go, glad when thy sunshine fills my soul, not sad when clouds o'ercast, since thou within thy sure control of love dost hold me fast or as even better the Lord Jesus puts it, no man can pluck them out of my hand, and no man can
can pluck them out of my Father's hand, and I and my Father are one. Oh, yes, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Dear ones, if you are a Christian, the roots go into the eternal heart of your heavenly Father, and they will never, ever be dislodged. Thanks be to God for such a salvation. Heavenly Father, even as we scrape the surface of such a text as this in these three verses, we are conscious that You have loved us with a sea of love that overwhelms us, but also causes us to rejoice. And so, we pray that we may sink ourselves into that sea, that we may learn that You are able to make us swim. Lord, come especially to those who feel themselves to be fragile, are broken by the trials of life, assailed by the lies of the devil, confronted with a great sense of guilt or shame, and reassure them that You mean to do them good, to change them into the likeness of Christ. For all those You have predestined, You call, and those You call, You justify, and those You justify, You surely glorify. Fill our hearts with these delights, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.